Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crown. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have with us Stephen Preuss. He is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks. Good to be here. So earlier this year, uh, you and a couple others were editors and produced a festdrift in honor of John Stevenson, one of Godestine's editors called Servant of Christ's Church. And it's just a gem of a book, uh, lots of different articles covering lots of different topics. And uh, so thank you for producing that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great book. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about one of the articles there that, that I wrote. But uh, the, the book itself has got colleagues and friends and former students of Dr. Stevenson's, obviously, uh, well, some might not know, I, I am his son-in-law as well. And so it was a great privilege for me and my brother James uh, to work with uh, Tom Winger, uh, Dr. Winger, who is the major you know, mover in this. Uh, but mm-hmm. wonderful man to, to uh, honor, uh, dear father-in-law, dear friend in Christ uh, and brother in Christ. And of course, the Godestine crowd knows John Stevenson pretty well. Yeah. So the article that you published is or that, that you included in this book is called The Story of Uriah Remedied, Mortal and Venial Sins as a Useful Gospel and Lutheran Distinction. And uh, right away, um, you say, well, Lutheran pastors readily teach the difference between original sin and actual sins, further classifications of actual sins, including mortal and venial, are too often lacking. One rarely hears sermons that will use this terminology or even that of ruling and ruled sins, which is maybe more common among us. So what spurred you on to take this topic on and kind of help develop for us almost a reclaiming of what is part of our history in in these distinctions? Well, I think we've all seen an antinomian spirit uh, in the Lutheran Church uh, that has caused people to talk a lot about justification, which is rightly, um, although, as we know, uh, when they leave out the atonement and the vicarious satisfaction, they get that justification wrong, too. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they, they do tend to leave sanctification simply uh, out of the picture or very shallow understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just kind of the broad you know, idea that we all know about. But the other thing that kind of got me was, you know, going through the Lutheran confessions, reading Walter's Law and Gospel, and then just reading through some of Chemnitz. Um, I just kept on seeing them talk about how not all sins are the same. You know, all sins will damn, uh, but mm-hmm. not all sins are the same. And talking about kind of the mastering power, the the lording over of the, the, the uh, individual of sin. Mm-hmm. And that matters. And so I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit. And it was just a topic that had come up in, in numerous occasions uh, over over my you know last couple of years as I was studying the doctrine of sanctification, you know, broadly speaking, it's there's a lot to dive into. So mm-hmm. I just think this is another another avenue for us to get into discussing, you know, why it's important for us to talk about how sin, uh, can continue to rule over us in this life, uh, and to see that you know yes, the Roman Catholics get it wrong, uh, and they make this distinction kind of uh, just just terrible, <laughs> right? But we can we can make use of it correctly. So yeah, I you know I think it's just more of the broad broad uh, desire to understand sanctification as taught by Scripture and the Lutheran Church better. Yeah, it, it seems as though. Like what you have done here in this essay, and then what others are doing in other sectors of the Lutheran Church, is they are opening up the treasures of our forefathers that we have just kind of forgotten about uh, to help us actually address what they were already addressing then, 
uh, not only against, say, our Roman adversaries, our papist ad- adversaries, or even our you know, enthusiast adversaries, but also even the adversaries that kind of pop up within Lutheranism itself and being connected to what our Orthodox Lutheran fathers have always said actually proves to be very useful for what we face today. Yeah, it does. I mean, we kind of have fallen into, in many ways, cliche Lutheranism. Uh-huh. And, you know, we're very good at giving the hallmarks of Lutheranism, but they become kind of cliches if we don't uh, understand the richness of them, as, as you were pointing out. And yeah, there are mm-hmm. a lot of people doing this, and I think it's good for the church to be doing it uh, as, as parish pastors, uh, for our congregation's sake, as laity, uh, to continue to sharpen yourself on God's word. And the Lutheran fathers are, are so good with this because, you know, the point of Lutheran confessions, the point of reading Luther, the point of reading covenants of any of the dogmaticians is for us actually to understand scripture better. Uh, mm-hmm. We are very much biblical theologians, and that's what we want. And so, you know, you'll be reading the Bible and you'll say, you know, that doesn't really match up with what I heard from this Lutheran or that Lutheran. And you say, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's not scriptural it's, or, or it's incomplete to be t- charitable toward, toward many uh, I think sometimes they just have been taught and it's kind of a laziness uh, to just jump to the hallmarks uh, and and not flesh those out. So that's what we want to do here is kind of flesh out that there are distinctions uh, between sins, actual sins. Uh, and another reason, I didn't mention this in my, my paper, but I think that Lutherans, we don't have any article in the confessions on actual sins. They're all on original sin. And that's mm-hmm. on purpose because that's actually the, the core issue. Uh, but that might lead some people to think that, oh, well, maybe we don't have to worry about uh, actual sins and how they actually can affect the Christian conscience and other people, right? I mean, we all know all sins aren't the same and that, you know, if I, if I were just to punch you in the face, I mean, that would have a ramification. But, you know, to, to murder you would, would have a completely other ramification, both for, mm-hmm. for my own soul and for, for other people, you know, your family, your congregation, and the Lutheran Church in general, all mm-hmm. Godestines readers and listeners, right? So, I mean, there we have to make these distinctions, uh, and let's do it in a, a scriptural way, and let's do it with the help of our Lutheran fathers. Yeah. So, so what happened um, kind of historically, how did this kind of fall into disuse among us? Was it just um, because whatever we were facing at the time called for us to focus more on justification and thus the sanctification side or the discussion of the differences between actual sins kind of by sin of omission, so to speak, yeah. that came about? Or, or was there something else going on? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot to that. Without getting into all the history of it, um, I'll just give you one kind of anecdote from somebody that many have heard of. If if you were to, you know, read Adolf Kaberly uh, mm-hmm. and his que- The Quest for Holiness, which, you know, in German was just justification and sanctification, uh, you know, he does a great job in that book. It's a fantastic book. Everyone should read it if you want to understand Lutheran ethics and, and justification and sanctification. But, I mean, the heterodox position of the Roman Catholic Church has clearly led certain Lutherans to think that this distinction is is kind of worthless. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we certainly speak strongly against the Roman idea that certain sins are venial by their very nature. Uh, you know, so only some sins just merit temporal punishment, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. Um, they're just kind of little wounds rather than, you know, actually killing somebody. Right. Okay, well, uh, that's good then that you would think that the distinction that way, the way that they're using it, is worthless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Caberly, without co- qualification, he actually criticizes this. He calls it, you know, a mixed form of legal moralism, that it, you know, it constitutes a, a greater or lesser hindrance on the way to God uh, and, and really tries to relieve the situation, as he says, of man's sinful state by diminishing God's claim on our guilt and punishment. Well, uh, he says Lutherans have always stood in opposition to this. He calls it a frivolous use of this distinction. And Mm -hmm. obviously, we all agree. You know, that is 100% true. And I 100% stand with Caberly on this. 
but it might make people think, you know, and just reading this, and I'm just using him as an anecdote, not to, to pick on him. In fact, I'm going to defend him in a second. But, uh, you know, when you call it a frivolous use, you might think that, you know, because of this abuse, this just kind of destroys any use of the term, right? So, you know, think about chanting, right? We chant in our congregations and people will say the obvious, you know, it's too Catholic. Um, and so, you know, we hear that all the time, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater then, right? Just get rid of chanting because, you know, Catholics do it in certain ways. Um, but that's not what we want to do. And, you know, that's one of the things I brought up that my father-in-law, John Stevenson, is very good at avoiding is not letting the pendulum swing from one side to the other, but trying to get to what the scriptures actually teach and, and how history has has shown us um, that this is not as simplistic oftentimes as people would, would like it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Caberly, I do believe that he would totally agree with me on this. Um, I'll give you a quote as to why. Uh, in one of his chapters, when he starts getting into uh, sanctification and its relation to justification, he says this, every sin involves something more than its accusing and condemning status before the holiness of God, right? So that's where we're thinking about, okay, I am 100% a sinner and therefore, you know, should be condemned to hell. And I then am justified 100% through the righteousness of Christ, where he bore my, my sin and the wrath of God for my sin, took my guilt and punishment away, offered his righteous life to God on my behalf, you know, that's all obviously the center of what we teach. And mm-hmm. so, you know, understanding sin that way is good and understanding, you know, it's accusing, the, the law is accusing and condemning uh, use is very good. However, he goes on, Caberly does, he says, it likewise exerts a fettering and mastering power over man. And it is this aspect we have to consider. And then if you read through that chapter, he discussed points that uh, further classify actual sins, you know, talking mm-hmm. about things like th- sins of thought, word, and deed, and what this does to one's conscience and one's uh, how readily you will then continue on in sin if, if you keep on allowing your conscience to be to be destroyed like that. And so, uh, you know, Romans 6 verse 14, for sin will no longer have dominion over you, no longer be your Lord, right? For since right. you are no longer under law, but under grace. And so Caberly I think is a good anecdote of just showing that, you know, when he does mention mortal and venial sins, it's never, you know, in a good light because he's always addressing the Roman Catholic view. And I think that that's probably what has gotten into a lot of people's heads is that, you know, you read somebody, you know, awesome like Caberly and you just kind of take what he says and say, oh yeah, mortal venial sins. The first thing I think of is the Roman Catholic view and therefore Mm -hmm. it's terrible. We just throw the whole thing out. I'm arguing that, you know, let's look at what the Lutheran fathers actually did with this distinction and help us understand why they actually found it uh, a useful distinction, a gospel distinction. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's really what the paper is is all about. Yeah. And on top of that, it really kind of goes along with the spirit of our age, which is kind of just a great leveling, a homogenization of things instead of looking at real distinctions and the power that those distinctions have. Yeah, I totally agree. And we just need to keep on going back to, you know, as you mentioned before, to our Lutheran fathers and and reading them. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you read them, your eyes will be opened. I'm sure I have said, oh, that's a useless distinction. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm sure I have. Who, who knows? I mean, every one of us has, has flirted with with antinomianism um, and legalism at some point because you know we have the opinio legis for the, the legalism and mm-hmm. and our our sinful nature uh, is clearly at war with us. Uh, and so we need to have some charity with people when you know if somebody say you know I don't like this distinction, just use something else, use ruling and ruled sins. I'd say okay. I mean, I'm not gonna argue with you about the nomenclature, although I do think that it's it's useful. But uh, I think we just need to still realize that we need to dig deeper. And we're just kind of repeating that point. So I'll stop there. But we need to dig deeper into our Lutheran fathers and see what they actually taught. Yeah. So uh, let, let's just get into it then. What, what do they teach us? Yeah. So the first thing that uh, I went through in the paper is just that this is uh, a necessary scriptural distinction. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, just to, just to start with, you know, Martin Luther, the Lutheran Confessions, all of the Lutheran dogmaticians, Philip Melanchthon to, to Francis Pieper, they all treated approvingly, understood the right way. 
And, mm-hmm. and Walther, you know, has two theses in his long gospel that actually address it specifically. So clearly we can't ignore it either. So the first thing is that it's a necessary scriptural distinction. Uh, if you were to go to Psalm 19, for example, verses 12 to 13, uh, you hear, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me, that I may mm-hmm. bl- be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So there, you know, David's making a distinction between errors that one does, you know, without fully considering, uh, you know, what you're doing and then presumptuous sins, right, that are actually done out of pride. And he actually goes through the Hebrew terms and shows you that those Hebrew terms clearly mean something uh, different. And Mm -hmm. so we have to make some sort of a distinction there. Uh, Numbers 15 is another place. God distinguishes in numbers between one who sins unintentionally and and so as to offer, you know, a year-old female goat for a sin offering. And then you have one who sins with a high hand, as it says, uh, and that's that's presumptuously, right, pridefully, uh, and mm-hmm. therefore is cut off from among the people. So you've got difference in punishment, mm-hmm. uh, and so clearly they're making a distinction between sins there. You know, there are a lot of verses we could go through. I'll just mention a few more. Uh, you know, First John is a big one that we go to because it, it's got several verses. Uh, one one thing that Chemnitz does is he he says we have to distinguish between having sin and then committing sin. Mm. And so obviously we, we hear this, you know, quite often, First John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so, yeah, we have sin. We cannot deny that. But then in First John 3 verse 6, uh, you, you see that it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So there's clearly a distinction within the first epistle of St. John uh, that, you know, those who still have sin within them but are cleansed by the blood of Christ, right? That's that's one thing. But then the other thing is intentional sin. Mm. Uh, we see the same thing in 1 John uh, 3 verses 8 and 9 about the practice of sinning, that you're actually of the devil. Uh, if you are making a practice of sinning, that's, that is a willful uh, persistent, presumptuous sinning. Mm. Uh, and then he says that no one born of God actually does that in First John 3, verse 9. So we see quite clearly that there are these distinctions in the epistles and, uh, and also in Jesus' own words. And that's where you know, Chemnitz goes on, and I, I really rely on Chemnitz on, on this section, but he says you know, there's a distinction between the godly who resists sin by the Spirit's power and the ungodly, and he, he says it this way, who is training himself, training himself in the art of sinning by pursuing mm. his passions. And so he actually looks at it as a training uh, that you are, you know, figuring out ways to perfect the art that you have of sinning, right? By right. pursuing your own sinful passions. And, you know, Jesus speaks this way in John eight thirty four. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Again, this is referring to uh, presumptuous, willful, persistent sin. Uh, Matthew 7, 23, he, he says that uh, you know, the workers of iniquity are to depart from him. And, and so obviously we all work iniquity in a sense, but he's not talking about those who are, you know, who have sin and yet it is forgiven through repentance and faith, mm-hmm. but those who are persistent in sin. Uh, you know, another we go through a lot of passages. I'll just maybe say I'll I'll leave it there, except for one last section here, because I want you to go and buy the book and and, and read all these articles. <laughs> uh, it'd be good for you to do that. But but a couple other things uh, that Chemnitz brings up is that there are passages that teach that the regenerate can lose the faith. We're going to return to this, but it is such an important point. He quotes First Corinthians six uh, verse ten. And so you hear that, you know, all sorts of uh, people will not inherit the kingdom of God, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and so on. Um, and, you know, Galatians 5 tells that too, that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we do know that people can lose the faith. Second Peter 2 verses 20 to 22 is, is probably the most famous where it says, you know, uh, you know, after we've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of, of Christ, 
you then are entangled in these things and overcome. And the last mm-hmm. state has become worse for them than the first. Uh, yeah. That's where we get the proverb, right? The dog returns to its vomit. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense, especially if you go through like the Pauline epistles that, you know, when he gets to his kind of turning point after his clear statements about justification, uh, I'm just thinking of Romans 8 here where he says, for, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the yep. spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That that there is a making a difference between receiving justification, receiving the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, and making use of them as a Christian in your own life. And it seems like this practice of making use of the righteousness of Christ in our life uh, has been completely co-opted by this passivity that you were kind of talking about earlier in in today's focus on justification. Yeah, you know, passive faith is is obviously the the very center of what we teach, and so it's understandable that people would have a a, a healthy at least suspicion of any type of a legalism that would cause us to think that we are are saved mm-hmm. and justified before God by anything that we do. It is one hundred percent for the sake of Christ and his his work on our behalf. And so we get it, we get it. But you're absolutely right too that, you know, this active faith that that is in love for God and our neighbor, uh, you know, it, it's, it just seems like you say, you know, you can't do it. So you might as well just kind of go ahead and do whatever you want. And there's no struggle, there's no fight. The words of scripture are jettisoned for uh, the sake of just kind of shallow, uh, cliches and trivialities that do not point us back to the scriptures, which teach us to, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this too, to actually cooperate ever so weakly, but to uh, let the spirit take the lead and, mm-hmm. and lead us where he will. And where he will is not where we will. Uh, and, right. and we need to then understand his word uh, better. One last point on that uh, necessity of a scriptural distinction, I think, um, and then we're, we're really done with that section, is that, you know, First uh, John 5 verses uh, 16 and 17 are kind of well-known verses for a lot of people where you see your brother committing a sin that's not leading to death. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people want to ask about the whole not praying. Well, we're not going to touch that because that's a different issue. But then he talks about a sin that is Uh, that leads to death. So there's sin that not leading to death, a sin that leads to death. Clearly, there needs to be some sort of a distinction here. Luther actually takes this up in his commentary on this and talks about like Judas, who's stubborn and defiant um, versus, you know, somebody who is, you know, because of their weakness, uh, you know, has sinned, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to lead to spiritual or or eternal death. Yeah. So then how do the Lutheran fathers make the distinction without falling into the error of Rome or perhaps the modern error of the, you know, the great homogenization of sin. Right. Yeah. So I think the most helpful thing to understand is that when we understand the Lutheran definition of mortal and venial sin, uh, it is meant to communicate the effect or the result of sin. Mm. So mortal, mortal sins result in spiritual and eternal death. Venial sins do not result in that. But the reason that they do not result in that is not because they are in and of themselves by nature, you know, less than these other sins, um, or less, they don't condemn less than these other sins. They all condemn. Um, mm-hmm. It's simply venial just means that they're pardoned. Right, and mortal means they lead to death, uh, right. and so venial sins are forgiven for those who repent and have faith in Christ. But uh, it's you know venial sins do not result in spiritual and eternal death, not because you know in and of themselves they merit less than that. So I mean, there there is no doubt that the Lutheran teachers are one hundred percent clear on this point. Uh, when you consider God's strict judgment in His law, all sins are mortal. And that's, that's worth repeating, you know, uh, that all sins are mortal when you actually consider it according to God's strict judgment in his law. Uh, you know, Walter quotes uh, Don Hauer, one of the Lutheran dogmaticians, who says that sin is as great as is the person offended by it. And 
we hear that God is offended by every sin. That is, it has offended against his holy law. Not that he's mm-hmm. offended like a 16-year-old girl or or boy or boy, um, you know, who, you know, is just so offended that you said something that was contrary to their feelings. Uh, but mm-hmm. that God's law is actually immutable and that any sin against it uh, is for him uh, outside of his holiness and uh, as Deuteronomy 27 says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Uh, and Paul quotes that in Galatians as well. James 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become gu- guilty of it all. You know, Jesus talks about unjust anger and lust in the heart, that these are, are worthy of condemnation. Uh, he says, mm-hmm. don't relax the commandments just before that. And so you know, even venial sins are committed against God's eternal law and righteousness. So they are mortal sins by their their own nature. So that's the first thing that we need to understand. We're talking about the result or the effect of sin. We're not talking about the nature of sin. And that's a helpful distinction to actually Mm -hmm. uh, help us through this. So it's the distinction between nature and effect is by their very nature, they offend God. But in terms of their effect in this world, and thus within the person who commits it and against those in this world that it's committed, that's that's the result effect you're, you're talking about. Is that correct? Or Yeah, and then all the way to, obviously, um, condemnation and in, in after death and Christ's return. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we, we have to see that while all sins are uh, worthy of damnation, uh, you know, not all sins result in the same spiritual uh, harm uh, mm-hmm. to the individual and to those who are in this world uh, of the individual. Yeah, uh, and so uh, that that that's a truth just in general. But we got to be careful there too, because uh, you know, when it comes to the unregenerate, you know, all sins are mortal. Because right. they have no venial sins, right? So right. Um, there are just Romans who can do good things and and you know practice self control that they learned from you know some YouTube video or book that they read, uh, and that's that's you know good for this world. But uh, yeah, this distinction is meant you know the effect there is spiritual and uh, eternal death for those who uh, have mortal sins, but those who, whose sins are, are venial, that is they repent and have faith in Christ. Uh, they do not have that, that guilt and punishment anymore because Christ has, has taken that upon himself and that has been imputed to us through faith. And so, you know, this is very much a distinction that still understood in the Lutheran way, uh, upholds the doctrine of justification by God's grace, uh, through faith for Christ's sake. So, uh, we don't want to get away from that, but it is a distinction that is for the regenerate. So obviously the unregenerate, they're just in mortal sin, right? This isn't for them. And so uh, it doesn't pertain to all people in general, but only to the reborn, uh, Gerhardt reminds us. And so, you know, we understand this from Luther too, where Luther often talks about how you need to consider the person first, right? And then the work. Uh, And so he does the same thing with mortal and venial sins. So in his treatment on Galatians 5, he says this, Mortal sin and venial sin are distinguished from each other, not on the basis of the substance of the deed involved or according to some difference in the sin committed, but on the basis of the person or because of the difference of those who commit the sins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gerhardt says the same kind of thing. You know, venial sins are not from the nature of the act itself, but from the condition of the person who sins. If he is in Christ through faith, his sins of weakness are covered. So we do have to kind of keep that that point uh, alive that, you know, the distinction between mortal and venial sins is really a distinction uh, for the regenerate of the gospel, that, that when we understand that our sins are through repentance, we then have faith in this forgiveness that we have. We then, uh, as believers, uh, have this daily forgiveness. And, and all of the Lutheran fathers talk about it. I think it's worth quoting that, uh, you know, Pieper says this distinction is on the basis of the fact that the sins of believers are daily forgiven. Walter mm-hmm. says sins are venial for Christ's sake, right? Otherwise, they're mortal. Gar- Gerhardt says it's because of the mercy of the Father, the merit of the Son, and the sanctification of the Spirit. It's a great Trinitarian way of looking at it. 
Hutter says that when Christians believe that for the sake of their mediator, God regards them with favor and gratuitously forgives them all their sins through and on account of Christ, that this is where we have venial sins. Chemnitz says those who repent and believe in Christ receive, possess, and retain grace in the remission of sins. You know, Luther says that sins are venial for the believers on account of Christ, the propitiator, who expiated by his death. And so this distinction is for the regenerate, for the reborn, for believers, and not for uh, the unbelievers. And it is, as we're going to try to get here, to uh, a very helpful uh, distinction uh, when we do actually consider how we flesh it out into our lives. So you say this is distinction is for the regenerate. Is this then primarily for the purpose of self-examination when we come before God in the service or just before the pastor uh, to consider the things that weigh upon us? Yeah, all, all of these things uh, and more. Uh, you know, when you look at the Lutheran definition to, uh, you know, first to talk about the effect of sin versus the nature of sin, uh, once you get into those who are, you know, actually regenerate, we start understanding that there's actually a way in which those who are regenerate who have venial sins uh, because they repent and, and trust in Christ, who is their righteousness, that their sins can actually become mortal. Mm. That is, you know, it can force the Holy Spirit to depart from your heart and, and mm-hmm. destroy faith. So, an essential aspect to this definition then of mortal and venial sins is that one can lose the faith. Yeah. And so, you know, Kebnitz, uh says that the idea that Christians can't lose the Holy Spirit, can't lose faith, can't lose God's grace through mortal sin, he says it should be avoided as the worst poison to the soul. Now, that's pretty powerful, right? Yeah. I mean, my goodness. So we should pay attention to this. The Calvinists were teaching that, uh, that you can't lose your, your faith. And so uh, they're very strong on this. Melanchthon, you know, you read this when you read through the, the Lutheran Confessions and the Apology, that faith cannot coexist with, with mortal sin. You hear that throughout the Apology in several different places, uh, most especially in, in Article Article 4, of course. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in his Loki Communis, uh, we hear that he says the idea that some people have that in going against conscience, the elect do not drive out the Holy Spirit is a manifest error that must be condemned. Uh, and of course, Walther, uh, we know this from reading through his long gospel, that thesis uh, 18 says that a, a preacher is doing just terrible harm when he doesn't distinguish between the regenerate and the unregenerate. So that you give the impression that you know Christians they too wallow in mortal sins just like the unregenerate do, right? We're all sinners. Therefore, we all just never want uh, to follow the Spirit. I mean, it's just, it's obnoxiously wrong. Mm-hmm. And so he he actually brings up Romans 6.14, which we talked about before, you know, it's and says it's absolutely impossible for a person who's in the state of grace to be ruled by sin. And then in Thesis 19, he says that this distinction between mortal and venial sins is necessary, quote, to prove that certain sins do in fact expel the Holy Spirit in the believer. So I already quoted to you 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, Galatians 5. Mm-hmm. And Chemnitz, you know, tries to kind of further explain this loss of faith by talking about how it materializes. Mm-hmm. And he says that it actually occurs um, in such a way that is different than you know the way people might think about it. It's not just that you happen upon sins, but you know it's lapses or falls contrary to conscience, as he puts it. Uh, and so there, he talks about what what is called the degrees of conscience, which is founded upon James one fourteen and fifteen, where he says, "But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire." When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what Chemnitz, Chemnitz does is he kind of details these steps or degrees of conscience. And I'll just read to you what he says. He says, first, uh, the first step is our own original concupiscence, so that natural inclination toward, toward evil things and, and fleeing from, from God uh, that comes with, with the original sin. Two, the temptation by our concupiscence when it begins to urge us to evil and gives us evil thoughts. 
Uh, Three, the inviting enticements, for we are lured by these enticements just like birds and fish in the same way our original lust invites us by these lures. Four, the enticing occurs when our will through the fires of evil desires is unexpectedly seized to bring it to obedience. Even the regenerate person can fall into this position. For Paul in Romans 7.23 laments that he is made captive, but while he still remains in Christ, he resists uh, and damnation is still not upon him. And then five, an evil intention is conceived, a plan to do wrong. And he says this, when wickedness progresses to this point, repentance and faith are driven away. Mm. And then six, lust brings forth sin, that is, when this work is completed, which was undertaken, then sin produces death. And so I guess the point to start with here is that the loss of faith doesn't happen right away. Yeah. And so when you continue uh, in it, I mean, it, it, it continues to have a more and more mastering power over you, a lording power over you. That word in, in um, uh, Romans 8 for, or 6 verse 14 uh, is the word, you know, it's the verb form, I guess, of, of lording over, right? So kuri yu'o uh, is having dominion over or be the lord over. And, and that's what's actually happening is that your conscience is just going, 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 and then can be gone because yeah. it's not clinging to God's word. And so Paul, you know, obviously he got to several of those steps like many of us, all of us have up to kind of the, the brink. It's terrifying when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're meant to think about this as we'll get to, because it's, it's a useful thing for us to do. Um, but yeah, this just degrees of conscience. He's just trying to show that, yes, uh, look at the scriptures. You don't need to say, okay, yes, there are six degrees and you have to follow these six. But just to look at scriptures, James 1, 14 and 15 clearly teaches that that this is what happens, that it is a, uh, it doesn't happen right away. It, it kind of just comes uh, through time and through giving in and giving in and giving in. Yeah. And so uh, that that's something that, you know, that we can lose faith is such an important point for for the uh, the definition as we're looking at mortal and venial sins. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of that kind of that well-known quotation from Luther about, you know, it's one thing to let the birds fly over and make a mess in your hair. It's another thing to let them make a nest in your hat. Um, yeah, it's that's very exactly easy, right. Yeah, it's very easy, it seems, to get rid of and scare away birds. Is it just that we we get tired and lazy in it? it it's that we, it, don't, we don't think that it is a matter of, of maintenance and, and cultivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I picked, I picked weeds the other day. Can you believe I have to do it again? Yeah. You know, I, I mowed my lawn and then it rained. Can you believe I, I have to do it again? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they're just going to continue to come down. I used to do grounds crew for college and, you know, those barn swallows would swoop down by my head and, you know, they're going to do that yeah. and you have to deal with it. And mm-hmm. uh, how do you And you should expect well, to deal with it. I, it's, that seems to yeah. go along with it. Like the expectation that this is part of the deal. It is. It is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so, you know, that that's a topic we could we could probably take up again uh, on another. Uh, and this is this is kind of the point of this, right? As we began this this podcast episode, is that that we want to d- d- dig deeper into these issues, uh, and this is just one way to doing it. One, one last thing I mentioned, I just wanted to bring it up because it's just so important. It's a confessional point is that this is the teaching of Luther when it comes to the losing of faith. This is what we hear in the small called articles. He says, therefore, it is necessary to know and teach that when holy people, aside from the fact that they still have and feel original sin and also daily repent of it and struggle against it, this is what we've been talking about, somehow fall into a public sin, such as David who fell into adultery, murder, and blasphemy against God. At that point, faith and the Holy Spirit have departed. The Holy Spirit does not allow sin to rule and gain the upper hand so that it is brought to completion. But the spirit controls and resists so that sin is not able to do whatever it wants. However, when sin does whatever it wants, then the Holy Spirit and faith are not there. So somebody might claim to be a Lutheran, but if they do not confess that, they're not a Lutheran. This is the Lutheran position. Uh, It is why we are so uh, adamant about uh, actually getting back to our, our Lutheran fathers is that they're teaching us scripture and they're not leading us astray on on topics like this. Uh, you know, the Calvinist error that we hear about adopted at the Synod of Dort 
where it says God can't, he does not completely remove the Holy Spirit, you know, even when you sin outrageously, is to be condemned. Mm-hmm. And and that's, you know, obviously we need to do this very carefully. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that mortal sins then make you you damned. If if you're regenerate and you fall into sin, uh, you can you shouldn't utterly despair. You can you can certainly repent, right? That's what God wants you to do, so that you might receive the reconciliation Christ has accomplished for you. But don't don't use this ch- as a cheap grace. Rather, you know, as Romans two says. You know, or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So, you know, if, if somebody is listening to this or, or has somebody that they know who is in a, a sin that they're just persisting in, you can bring them to repentance. You can come to repentance yourself by, by yeah. saying yes to God's law and then rejoice in the gospel, which is just as much for you as it is for anybody else who hasn't done what you've done. And so we're, we don't ever want to lead people away from Jesus. Uh, the whole right. point of this is to lead them back to him and then to live in him. Right. So we have the distinction, but your article says that it's useful. So how do our fathers uh, teach us to make use of this, uh, either personally as Christians, but then perhaps even as pastors from the pulpit or in our teaching and admonishing our encouragement? Yeah, that that's uh, kind of the the point that I wanted to get here uh, as well. Um, you know, uh, one last thing before we we enter into that, just just for for the sake of those who are listening, uh, just read the book, read read my article, and you'll get more <laughs> on this this point. Um, but you know, the definition of venial sins for the regenerate then. Uh, is just it's meant to help us to understand yes they still deserve eternal death even for those venial sins but they're forgiven daily so we call Mm -hmm. these sins of weakness we call these daily sins as christians you know for the sake of christ and through faith alone we are forgiven and we are we don't have christ righteousness uh, accounted to us um and so the, the real issue is that because faith can be lost and sin wants to rule over us we we need to see how sin remains venial and so you know Gerhardt talks about this, Chemnitz talks about this, you know, the necessity that the regenerate resist and fight against their fleshly lusts, you know, with repentance during the earliest stages of this concupiscence, right? Not letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. He also talks about how the regenerate need to seek by faith uh, forgiveness for their sins of resisting the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a sin that maybe maybe we need to actually be more explicit about. Yeah. You know, repent of resisting the Holy Spirit. You know, Stephen talks about that in his his uh, um, sermon to to the Jews, and right. you know how they always resist the Holy Spirit. Um, but also, you know that that we recognize, Chemnitz says, or Gerhardt and Chemnitz both say this, that there are no you know inherently minor sins. Um, and and then finally, you know, he talks about how uh, the regenerate must immediately repent after consenting to or acting on on a wicked work. And, you know, remember the, the simile used to set Picotter. So that's just really quickly just to kind of finalize that definition before we get into the uses. And the uses are are kind of where I wanted to lead to. And that's uh, through five points that Chemnitz gives us. Mm-hmm. And the, the five points uh, are based on how he sees that the, the Christian led by the spirit would actually first fear God and avoid acts against conscience. So we fear God, you know, I've talked to you about this before, that we fear God both in the sense that we fear his wrath as sinners, and then as the regenerate, we we fear to displease him and want to do his will. And so we want to avoid things that would actually go against his will. And right. so guided and, and ruled then by the Spirit, uh, you can use this distinction and you can say, you know, I want to be constantly cognizant of the fact that there are mortal sins, that you know, if I keep on, you know, letting these things go and and consenting to them, you know, that that could make it so that I would unwittingly run into you know the devil's trap, and yeah. you know, we we know that David failed to do this with with Bathsheba, right. and he's kind of the the example I use in these uses and distinctions for Christians. Uh, the second use is that it encourages the regenerate to examine his life carefully for for mortal sin, 
And, you know, we talked about that briefly, you had brought that up, that that's one of the things that we want to do. You know, enumeration, I think, is often confused for examination. Enumeration is, it's impossible, right? Obviously, we cannot enumerate all of our sins. We, we quote that again in Psalm 19, which I quoted before, who can discern his errors. But examination is, is encouraged all over the place. You know, I mean, just think about confession and absolution. Do you examine your station in life according to the Ten Commandments? And you'd see whether you're engaged in something uh, that is, going, is, is bringing you false security. And, you know, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to, you know, say, yes, I shouldn't be doing this and, and not continue to practice it? And mm-hmm. so examining uh, is incredibly important because false security is incredibly dangerous. Uh, it, it comes from, you know, it, it's such a state of mind, Chemnitz says, uh, it, it comes the hardening, a, a reprobate mind, the sin mm-hmm. against the Holy Spirit even, right? I mean, so that's another topic to get into, but, but not here. So uh, carefully examining yourself is one of the uses of this distinction then. So you, you can avoid this false security. You can return to God regularly through repentance and faith and not let, you know, that, that mastering power of sin uh, inch closer and closer to taking your faith away. So, you know, Second Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Uh, and you know, thanks be to God for the prophet Nathan, who, who brought David to examine himself through that, that parable of, mm-hmm. of the rich man and, and the, the poor man and, and the, the sheep. Yeah. So David ended up confessing his sins and uh, all, you know, recognized his original sin, right? That's where we get one of our, our Sadie's Doctrina on, on original sin is from Psalm 51 verse 5, uh, that he ultimately sinned against the Lord too, and that God was justified in his judgment. Uh, his judgment was blameless. So, so that's the second uh, thing that we need to consider is that, you know, not only is it, uh, you know, should we fear God and avoid uh, sins against conscience, but that we would also then examine ourselves uh, and to see whether that mortal sin is is creeping up on us uh, or that we've entered into it. Uh, the third so use that he mentions, go before ahead. You, before you move on to that, so if we begin to examine ourselves and we find perhaps that we are we have been lax in fighting against the allurements of sin in our life. Uh, what should we do about it? Yeah, I, the first thing is is obviously to to repent of our sins before God, uh, uh, to to repent to, of our sins before our, our confessor. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you have one, to to go and, and speak that word. Uh, of, of confession uh, to God uh, and, and receive that forgiveness through God's called servant. Uh, thanks be to God that that you can do that. And then what? Well, then you can you can you make anything right? You know, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you know maybe you did somebody wrong and that person's now dead. Well, mm-hmm. God forgives you. God forgives you and and cling to His His Son's righteousness that covers all your sins. But maybe that person's not dead. Yeah. Then go. Go to that person, as Jesus says in, in Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount, go to that, that one that you have done wrong to, and before offering any gift on the altar, go and make, make peace between you and that person. Um, and your father confessor, you know, or any good Christian who you've maybe talked about with about this, this you know, your sin of yours, would encourage you to do so. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the spirit is encouraging you to do so. And so don't fight him. Don't resist him. Now go and do that. Yeah. And uh, I think what a lot of people do is they just say, well, I'm forgiven and, and therefore I'll just go on with my life. And, you know, it, it can be very damaging to your soul uh, to to do that because your conscience will, it, it will not stop being pricked. Uh, and, and it could cause you to eventually uh think that you're a Christian, but while you're really living in, for the example I'm giving there, hatred and denying the gospel by not wanting to be reconciled, right? So that's just one anecdote or one, one example, but sure. I think that kind of helps. Yes. No, definitely. Um, should I move on to these uses? Yes. Yeah. So the th- you were at the third use. Yeah. So the third use is, is that we understand what's involved in the repentance of the fallen um, and that kind of it gets to us uh, what we just talked about, really. <laughs> uh, it's not merely, you know, just recognizing and confessing sin. Uh, 
Uh, but as Chemnitz says, we must certainly cease from evil and desist from sinning. So, you know, wanting to do better, striving to do better, making a beginning in this doing better. Uh, this is what he's talking about. You know, Saul is the example that he gives and I uh, give in my essay that, you know, he wept before David, if you remember, you know, uh, yeah. David, David cuts off just a piece of his garment and his, his conscience is pricked because of that, right? Against the Lord's anointed. But Saul's just like, you know, you're righteous and I'm evil. But then what does Saul do? He just goes right back to persecuting David. And so <laughs> it's not real repentance. It's just an appearance of faith. Um, you know, it's like the equivalent of just putting believe on your, you know, wall or something while living in manifest sin, right? Right. Um, today. And so David is kind of the example of how, you know, the fallen, what what did David do after Nathan pointed out his sin and, and said, the Lord put your sin away? He accepted the Lord's discipline. Uh, he worshiped the Lord after his son's death. Uh, but he, he actually said, you know what, I'm going to receive this discipline. It is the Lord who has done this. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I will receive that discipline and, and, and uh, not fight against it. And uh, you see that with people today where, you know, something might happen in their lives and they say, well, but I still want this kind of a life. Well, yeah, but you did something that actually prevents you from having that kind of a life. Right. Um, and so you need to stop doing that and come with an actual broken spirit and a contrite heart. Uh, and from that will flow a clean heart as mm-hmm. Psalm 51 tells us. And then David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I think everybody who does page 15 or divine service setting three, you know, the common service should maybe remind ourselves of that. When we sing the offertory, create in me a clean heart, O God, and then we're done with it. The very next verse is then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so that's what we want to do is actually teach others not to fall into these kinds of sins that we have struggled with or entered into ourselves and have repented of, and then want to do better and seek to, to do that as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, the fourth use is that we keep God's instruction about fighting against sin before us always. And this is really just a reminder that, you know, the spirit and the flesh are constantly at, at, at war and at battle amongst each other. And, you know, you can, how can you read Galatians and Ephesians and not see this? And so we need to keep that in front of us. And I I think this is the use, if I'm honest as a pastor, that I probably use the most with my members as a way of teaching this kind of mortal and venial sins, or as as many Lutherans will just simply say, ruling and ruled sins, uh, is that, you know, we actually need to, as Chemnitz puts it, and this is going to make people uncomfortable, but, you know, that's what what God does. Uh, For unless we support the spirit in his struggle against the flesh, it will be easy for us to fall and lose our salvation. Now, if you know your confessions, mm-hmm. that sounds a lot like what we hear in the formula uh, when it comes to uh, sin uh, and, and our, our and free will and, and our, our will after we've been converted, is that you know we say that on the basis of the Spirit's work of, of rebirth and renewal, quote, we can and should be cooperating with him, though still in great weakness. This occurs not on the basis of our fleshly natural powers, but on the basis of the new powers and gifts which the Holy Spirit initiated in us in conversion. So you'll hear people go after this cooperation thing because they're so scared of us entering into cooperation, synergism when it comes to justification. Good. You should be scared of that. That is always an ever-present danger. However, uh, he did not only teach us scripture or any of our Lutheran fathers. They do not only teach us that we have this uh, issue with, you know, justification where we we just are, are constantly thinking that we're not saved and therefore need the forgiveness of sins. It also teaches us that we have to support what the Holy Spirit is working in us. We have mm-hmm. to fight against this sin. And, and you need to keep that before yourself. Otherwise, you're going to just keep on inching your way again toward this uh, mortal sin where you're not really clinging in repentance and faith to forgiveness. You're using it as uh, an excuse to sin that grace may abound as St. Paul warns against uh, consistently and constantly. So, uh, you know, David, David understood that renew a right spirit, right? Within me. That's, that's what he said. And that's what we sing. And so that's what we want to do. 
The fifth and final use is uh, that we would then have remedies and comforts uh, as we deal daily with sin. And this is uh, kind of, you know, my, my article was actually uh, entitled, if I can remember the title, The Story of Uriah, which you can read again the article as to why that is. Mortal and venial sins is a useful gospel and Lutheran distinction. And I've covered the whole scripture in Lutheran, but the gospel distinction I wanted to return to, and here, here's where I return to it, is that, you know, it's the final word on the matter. Christians have the stain of sin. They have great weakness. You know it, I know it. Every one of the hearers knows this. So in the midst of this, and even if you've lapsed, you need an answer to your situation. And so this distinction between mortal and venial sins actually gives you great comfort because you realize you've got concupiscence within you. It will always be within you in this life until you are in heaven or Jesus returns, and it will always then be warring against you in this life. And if you actually feel that and experience that, then you need not despair but you can then live in repentance and confess that sin and, and do that regularly, not only in church, but on a regular basis and to fight against this then concupiscence uh, and, and remain in the faith, clinging to Christ. And, mm-hmm. and David certainly then made use of remedies and comforts. You know, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. So we're not just about breaking bones, you know, we're, 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 but they do need to be crushed, don't they? Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're not going to take comfort. So David's mortal sin lasted nine months, right? Yes. Uh, but through repentance and faith, David's sin became venial. So what was the best thing to do there? Let David continue to think that, oh, I'm a good Israelite? <laughs> or for Nathan to come and say, you're that you are the man, and then pardon him and and see that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And so this final use, this fifth use that Chemnitz gives uh, is to have these remedies and comforts always before you. In other words, delight in the gospel, delight right. in the righteousness of Christ. And so I find that in the end, after going through all of this, this does the exact opposite of what people might fear it would do, which is to steal Christ and his righteousness, which is imputed to faith for our salvation away from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's doing the exact opposite if we understand it rightly. So, You're right. It, the fear would be that by focusing on this distinction, you will create doubt in people's minds about their salvation. However, it seems as though what has been happening is we've made people secure in in their minds and hearts about salvation instead of confident in what the Lord has done to make all of our mortal sins venial by the blood of his son. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And so as we're kind of uh, looking at this false security as one of the ditches that yeah. we recognize so much today, uh, it is a helpful distinction for us to say, listen up, look at how useful these t- this distinction between sins can be. So, so actually use them uh, in order to help you uh, be a Christian and, mm-hmm. and live the Christian life, while at the same time, understanding this distinction helps us with utter despair, uh, because uh, the whole point is the venial part of it, you know, that they're forgiven. Yeah. They're forgiven, right? Uh, for Christ's sake, through faith alone. And so, yeah, it's a great, it's a great distinction when understood correctly. You know, scripture demands some sort of distinction. The Lutheran fathers properly define it, I think. You could read my, my essay to find out more. And I think mm-hmm. we should use it, you know, uh, whether we use that that exact nomenclature. Some people would prefer ruled and rule, uh, ruling sins, and, and I understand. Um, but ultimately, it's meant to bring us to those remedies that our Savior supplies in his word and sacraments. So I assume that we can see this playing out then in the sermons of Luther and Walther and uh, Gerhard. Uh, For the pastors who are struggling with how to preach this, uh, perhaps returning to those, those sermons, though they were meant for a different people, we can at least see how our Lutheran Orthodox fathers actually made use of this in their preaching and teaching. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think that a reading thesis uh, 18 and 19 of, of Walther and his long gospel would really help each pastor in you know, ruling and ruled sins. And, and uh, you know, along with what I mentioned with Chemnitz's five uses of this, uh, it, it can help us just to sharpen what we're doing as preachers to help them. You know, our, our, our parishioners, they know that they need to fight against their sin. They know that the Holy Spirit is using his word to work upon their hearts. And uh, instead of just ignoring this, uh, let us do it in a, a proper evangelical way and maybe make use of, of what, uh, you know, our Lutheran fathers have done in their writings to, mm-hmm. to, to help us to do that for sure. Well, th- thank you, Stephen, not only for your contribution in the story of Uriah Remedied, Mortal and Venial Sins as a Useful Gospel and Lutheran Distinction, but really for the entire volume. Uh, I'll include a link to purchase this book in the show notes, Servant of Christ's Church, a Fest Shrift in honor of John R. Stevenson. So thank you again, Stephen, for all your work and your insight. Thank you. Thank you.